I invite you first thing in this episode to pause. This is usually the first commandment of any given Blue Mind episode, often as the buffer zone to take you from wherever you've arrived into a very different space and time. I mean, if you want to take it to the loftiest level, let's call it a new dimension. No sense in being shy about it. This all being said, today I invite you to pause and dial back some time all the way to episode one of Blue Mind. The episode was called Blue Mind, Green Mind, and in it I spoke to Russell Marks, the photographer and neuroscientist who developed photographs using algae. But before Russell, I was joined by Nadia Huggins, a longtime sea swimmer and photographer living out in St. Vincent. You may know her as the Caribbean amphibian. So just for geographical reference, you'll find St. Vincent in the Caribbean Sea, and you may know it as St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Nadia came to the attention of all of us at Heckles very early in the initial lockdown period of 2020. It was a time of uncertainty, panic, calmness, and I mean basically all the emotions on the spectrum, including all kinds of suddens. Thinking back to it now, I had a feeling I would never be able to remember exactly how time felt at that point. These suddens I mentioned were happening every day, and our nervous systems and brain responses were really being given a no-mercy obstacle course to navigate. We all have our own individual responses to this time, so I won't even begin to attempt to speak for everyone. But one thing I can say is that discovering Nadia's photography on Instagram was one of the purest rays of light to shine through those mental clouds. At a time in our lives when confinement was the order of the day, her photography was such release and relief and sheer escapism into an under and on water world, as well as on land. The photos were so abruptly refreshing and immediately lush and it was the perfect introduction to her world of work. If you didn't catch episode one, I would genuinely recommend you have a listen. Nadia was such a friendly presence and the debut guest on the podcast, and you'll feel uplifted and inspired on contact. Well, the purpose of this episode isn't strictly to regale Nadia with praise and endorsement, though it's all well deserved, of course. The purpose of this episode here is to catch up with her about an event which took place near the end of 2020 and continues to hassle the environment even up to now, which, at the time of recording, is around early summertime. But we'll get back to that. For now, let's get you reacquainted with what's happening here at the Blue Mind Labs. You're listening to the Blue Mind podcast from Heckles in Margate. Think of this as your auditory escape hatch, safe space, and your world within or outside of a world. It can be an escape or an entrance, a journey of discovery or straight up relaxation time, whatever works best for you. I'm your host and producer, Buddy Peace, and mine will be the voice you'll hear narrating throughout. So here's the view from the boat right now. Mm, listening boat, I guess. Headphone cruise ship. 
however you'd like to frame it. This will be a slightly different episode than what you may have come to expect, more along the lines of a phone call to a friend to catch up. I thought it would be a nice opportunity to take a brief diversion to bring back a previous guest and see what's been going on, how life has been, but not necessarily in a pandemic context. I mean, I was most definitely curious to know how life has been in St Vincent throughout that too. But aside from the health crisis which we have all been experiencing, Nadia and her island have also seen a very different threat emerge. A volcano eruption. They didn't expect it to be like this, really. Expecting something like Here in the UK, it made the news on television very briefly. Actually quite a blink and you'll miss it newsflash. In fact, I only really saw that it had happened from Nadia's Instagram feed. Her photos rapidly changed palette from bright and vivid to washed out and very filtered. And then the next day you wake up and it's just like, the whole country is just desaturated. Like, totally just black and white. It's, it's the strangest thing to see because, you know, on one hand you have like this vibrant kind of like tropical landscape that's like greens and like, you know, these colourful houses and then all of a sudden like you wake up and it's just like muted, you know, like naturally muted. I should give you a bit of a background on what happened. And then let's hear from Nadia as the eyewitness with the view from St. Vincent. A series of volcanic explosions over the last few days have disrupted food and fresh water supplies, wiping out forests and farmland. La Soufrière is what's known as a stratovolcano. The Science Daily website describes this as... A tall, conical volcano composed of one layer of hardened lava, tephra, pieces of rock, and volcanic ash. These volcanoes are characterized by a steep profile and periodic explosive eruptions. The lava that flows from them is highly viscous and cools and hardens before spreading very far. Two examples of stratovolcanoes you may have heard of include Krakatoa in Indonesia, and Mount Vesuvius in Italy, which erupted catastrophically in 1883 and AD 79, respectively. Thankfully, La Soufrière wasn't of such magnitude, but there can be no doubt that an eruption of even a fraction of their power can cause a huge amount of problems for a community. Let me hand you over to Nadia for the first-person perspective, but firstly, an introduction. I'm Nadia Huggins, and I'm a photographer from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. A lot of the work that I do is based on an island, uh, so I consider myself a bit of a Caribbean amphibian because I'm always moving between the land and the sea and documenting those experiences that I have. I mean, it, I think, like, you know, from the last time we spoke, it, was, it seemed pretty normal, you know, like, the COVID situation was pretty much the same. Actually, we were at zero cases up until December, so, you know, like, life was kind of going on here like normal, you know, I'd go out, go to the beach, do a lot of hiking. But, you know, like things were, things were kind of happening as I expected it to. You know, I was trying to get on every weekend with friends and just explore the island. And, and then December, we just sort of had like this massive shift because like a lot of returning nationals were coming home. Um, and then our COVID cases started going back up. And then at the end of the year, December 31st, the volcano was like, hey, guys, I'm thinking of erupting at some point so it was just like this strange like turn of events that just happened at the end of the year because like you know like everybody was sort of making these jokes about like 2020 being the worst year and like I think Simonson was like all right hold my bear like we're about to go into 2021 and like make it you know make it into 
to this whole other different sort of nightmare. So it was, um, you know, you just kind of deal with things as they come. Um, but you know, like every day, like things kind of start to gradually take a different turn. And I think everybody was just kind of living in a state of anxiety, waiting, um, for this major shift, which we knew was going to happen, but I don't think we were all quite expected for what that meant. Maybe this speaks for a lot of people listening, but I feel like 2020 contains so many moments that, with the pandemic as the constant, inspired a reaction almost like, yeah, it makes sense. Like, how could this possibly get any worse? I think we all had it on some scale. Of course, this was different for everyone, but at times these things just mounted up and there was a sense of just one thing after another. But living in a place with a known volcano, is this something that could be prepared for in any way? Are there warning signs? I mean, the, luckily we have like scientists here who've been monitoring events throughout the years. I guess based on like the history of the eruption patterns, is this kind of like 40 year span between eruptions. So they sort of know that there will be activity happening around that general time. So they start to amp up um, their monitoring system. Apparently, like, our volcano is sort of, like, one of the most insidious because it can just start to erupt, as in, like, in an effusive eruption, which is a, a lot, you know, it's a slower process than an explosive one. So, just to quickly interrupt, as I wanted to look this up and make sure I heard correct, that's an effusive eruption, which Nadia explains here. Because, like, magma just starts to leak out of the earth, which is what started happening, it just... You know, one minute you look in the crater and there's nothing, and next minute there's like a little black mound that just kind of pops up out of nowhere. So that can happen without anybody knowing. And and it's quite, you know, silent because, you know, like most of us live in the south of the island and the volcano is like kind of, it's like in a crater. So there's no way that you will know unless you actually hike up there and saw it, you know. And even in terms of like earthquake activity, it's not significant enough for them to be like, okay, like there's something going on here. There was an eruption back in 1979, and one back in 1902. The former would be recent enough to feature in some inhabitants' memories. But in the case of the latter, even if you were a baby when it happened, that would make you around 120 years old now. But speaking of memories, this brings up an interesting idea, the Earth having a memory. There are a lot of older people that live in that area as well who would have been through the eruption that happened in 1979, so... Yeah, around the same time that this this one sort of happened too. So it's so strange because it's like the Earth has its own sort of timeline. It's like like everybody was anticipating a Good Friday eruption, which is what happened the last time. It came a few days before, but we did have a major explosion on the anniversary of that April 13th eruption. So it was like, I just, I found it so interesting how the Earth is just like, okay, like this is around the time that I usually make changes and it just... It just sort of coincidentally happened around that same time too. I mean, I don't, I don't, know, the, I don't know the science behind it, but you know, there must be something there. In speaking about memories and timelines, Nadia's photography deals very specifically with those two subjects, capturing a memory and marking a point on a timeline. So with this massive event happening on the horizon, I was wondering, did her creative instincts kick in or was it more of a flight situation? I was imagining scenes like in the movie Twister, with Nadia on the back of a jeep heading excitedly straight into the ash cloud. In a way, I suppose I did a very irresponsible thing, which was a 
trying to get into the red zone to get images when I should have been going in the opposite direction. Um, but I mean, the reason the reason for that is because I, you know, I had been working so closely with the Seismic Research Center for the last number of years, like developing all this material to help people evacuate, um, curating an exhibition on images from like 1902 and 1979, just trying to educate people about what actually happens during an eruption. And I think maybe just seeing those images really sort of inspired me. It's like, no, I need to be able to figure out a way to document this time. I need to get in the right position to do this. I mean, you know, I, w I was still very careful and safe about it in the end because, you know, like I'm trying to figure out like what, where was the safest place for me to position myself. So a couple of friends and I ended up getting a speedboat um, sort of close to the red zone, not, in, not right in there. They wanted to go right in, but like luckily I was like, guys, that's like a really bad decision. Like, I don't think that's the safest thing. <laughs> As someone who works with sound so much, I really understand that instinct. Like you're mentally evaluating and weighing it all up in your head. Is this a risk worth taking? But imagine the results. I'd be the only one. It's such a strange thought pattern, but it usually does level out with the logic side of the brain, basically sitting down the creative part and saying in a forceful tone, Look, I get it, you want the images, you want the sound, but this is very dangerous. And ultimately, well, hopefully, this side does eventually win. To go back to the event itself though, I wanted to see if Nadia remembered what it all felt like as it was happening. I'm sure she had a whole file of memorized imagery and inner minds photography from those moments. Yeah, it was it was definitely like a lot of adrenaline rushing on that day because, um, you know, the first explosion happened like 8.30 in the morning and like a few people were in a position where they could see it and they shared it. So like as soon as that happened, I just like called my friends and like, all right, let's go. And then because we, we were already kind of preparing for it to happen. And it was just, yeah, it was just like adrenaline, like total awe. Like everybody on the island right down to the Grenadines can see this explosion happening. It was so high. You know, we just stared in awe. I don't think anybody thought about like, oh, like this ash is going up in the air, it's going to come down. Like, cause like on one side you're looking and there's like all this like massive gray ash plume going up and then behind you is just like blue skies. So it's, it's a very kind of contradictory place to be in, in that initial eruption. And then in the evening, then the ash started falling and it was so strange, it was like snow coming down at that kind of pace and just blanketing everything. It was like, it just became impossible to breathe. And, you know, like we, we were talking about going out that night, trying to document some of the, cause there's lightning that also happens in the ash bloom. Like this kind of like strange looking red lightning. You know, we thought we were gonna get images of that and then it was just like impossible to step outside the vehicle. So we, everybody just went home. And I think we all started to like crash and realize what was actually happening. And going back to the subject of colour, as we mentioned earlier, which was represented so vividly in her Instagram pictures, that shift was so incredibly dramatic and sudden from one group of photos to the next. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't like emotionally prepared for that. Like, it just didn't even occur to me that that... Like, I knew that in some ways from the images I had seen previously and people's accounts of it, but... From what I understand, like this eruption was way worse than the 79. So like the ash fall that we actually got in the green zone was way worse than it was in 79. So like I, I documented a shot of my mother's house because she has, she lives in this very like bright kind of peppermint greenhouse. And then the next day it was just like a totally different color. And I was like, 
I think seeing that like really kind of sunk things in for me, you know. With an event such as this, and a somewhat specific natural occurrence too, something that most of us won't experience in our lifetimes or locations, it made me wonder how a community deals with the aftermath. I don't just mean physically, but mentally too. Through the pandemic, which has been, and is at the time of recording, one of the biggest worldwide health emergencies in living memory, we've all found our own ways of dealing with it through gratitude, exercise, communication, entertainment, art, and so on, making our own way through. But with a sudden explosion from the ground, it's hard to know how a community would strategize and put a response in place to deal with such a force of nature. I asked Nadia how St. Vincent dealt with the immediate impact, the bigger picture from where she is. I think people mobilized really quickly, actually. I was incredibly surprised at like how how fast people networked with each other and, and, you know, obviously like people within the shelters and private homes were like reaching out to individuals and being like, hey, we need food, we need water, we need beds. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to put like the government in a bad light necessarily, but they didn't mobilize as quickly as they should have in that situation, especially for people in the shelters. Um, so I found like a lot of private individuals and like businesses were the ones who actually ended up mobilizing quickly. It's like, we need to get people beds to sleep on. We need to get them clean drinking water and um, and food and you know, especially because like a lot of people from the north of the island live kind of below the poverty line. So it was like we already knew they were vulnerable in certain ways, and we had to figure out a way to make sure at least that they were good for like a month or so before things start to stabilize again. And we started just getting a tremendous amount of support from outside, like other Caribbean islands, internationally. And I think in terms of like basic needs being met, like that has been and is being handled. But of course, you know, like this thing is sort of long-term, like we have to consider like rebuilding people's homes, like mental health, education, all these things which were already sort of like on the cusp prior to all this, so. I would say it's still very taboo in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, we live in a, in a very sort of conservative, predominantly Christian society. Um, and a lot of the fixes to those situations, people just sort of be like, well, you know, you can go to church or pray. And not saying that those things don't have their value within that, but a lot of people go undiagnosed and don't get the right kind of, you know, treatments for, for whatever they might be suffering from. They don't get the medication. Their families aren't necessarily very supportive, like they get ridiculed a lot. So we're still very much dealing with that kind of situation here. A lot of resources are not really pumped into mental health because people, you know, it's like this kind of invisible sort of illness. You can't really see it. And, you know, that people just be like, oh, well, you know, just drink more water and exercise and eat well and you'll be OK. And it's like, well, not that doesn't necessarily work for everyone. You know, it's like trying to kind of break that um that stigma around what mental health really is. So, I mean, it's also like it, it manifests in different ways with people as well. You know, like people, they can come off quite aggressive in certain situations. And, you know, when everybody's under stress and you're dealing with someone who is exhibiting this sort of aggression towards you, like your first instinct is to like be aggressive, you know, back to them instead of trying to be a little bit more compassionate and understanding, well, maybe, you know, they didn't have anything to eat this morning and, you know, they had to just take a van and, you know, which was quite uncomfortable, like on a regular day, like packed up in this like hot van of people and you don't have enough money to get to, to get to where you're going and you have to do all these things and try and find a job. And 
of course, like people are going to start to be frustrated in, in those sort of situations, you know, and I think it's going to be even more exacerbated in this sort of situation now where, you know, so many things are compromised. So, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I don't know, like, what the solution is, you know, like, I'm just one person, but I hope, like, that I'm able to kind of at least help facilitate some ideas to help deal with those situations, you know. As we approach the end of our chat, I thought I'd ask Nadia about the activity we associate with her and her photography work, swimming. Yeah. What does the sea look like right now? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been swimming. I did start swimming maybe like two weeks after the, the explosions. Um, the first day I went was a bit uncomfortable because there was still ash in the atmosphere. So like while I was swimming, I wasn't able to breathe as well because I'm also asthmatic, so... There was that concern with being out there alone, you know, doing activity that requires breath. So that was that was a little bit difficult. Um, but in terms of like the sea is fine, like it, it looks it's a little bit murky, but I think it's also because we have some surging happening. So like a lot of the sand is being upheaved. But yeah, I've been I've been trying to go out at least three times a week now as opposed to every day and just get my exercise in. But yeah, I mean, think, like when you look outside, everything is normal. It's like nothing ever happened, you know. It's so bizarre. Like I, I, I was like yesterday, I was swimming and I was looking in shore, and I'm like, you know, like it just kind of registered in my brain, like, oh, like this is how an island is formed. Like it just, like you know it, like you read about it in geography and everything, right? You learn about it in school, but then when you actually see that formation, like in the red zone, like all the pyroclastic flows and the ash kind of formulating, when you look at all these mounds of the island, you're like, oh, like. It just kind of clicks and you're like, this was once created through the same violent process that's accumulated over time. And now you have like all these trees growing in it and like people have settled and it's just, it just kind of blew my mind. And it's like, you know, like when you have that moment when your brain goes, yes, this is, <laughs> this is how this happens. I love how that simple question about how the sea looks led on to a deeper realisation of how an island is born. I think that's really important as you don't often get these chances to really see where you live in a different and almost primal perspective. Like this place I live was once not there. And what I'm seeing now is the after effects, albeit scaled down, of what might have happened in the birth of this place. I get hints of that here in Margate. Usually it's from walking by the seafront at low tide and looking at the seabed as well as the cliffs. You get a slight glimpse of what it might have been like all those many years ago. I thought it might be a good time to mirror one of the questions I put to her the last time we spoke in episode one. Just something that sprang to mind as we were talking that first time, being that she spends so much time in the ocean and has a unique understanding of it, being in such regular and deep contact with it. The question, do you have a message for the ocean? Or rather, has the message changed since last time? (laughs) I think that was a tough one the last time you asked me. I would say go easy on us. Like I've, I've definitely had a shift in perspective about what, um, what's the more vulnerable thing in this situation. And before I thought it was the land, but I realized the land is actually quite resilient and nature really finds ways to adapt. I think I'm more worried about us and our place in the, in the timeline of history and like where, where we'll be. So I think I, w- I would probably say to the land to like help us understand ways to design smarter to treat it better and to be a lot smarter about how how we're really thinking of moving forward from this moment on 
I think that's a perfect note on which to wrap up. The message is the same as before. Go easy on us. I like that. I think what I like so much about it is that nestled inside those four words is pure respect for the ocean and acknowledged power that it contains. It says so much in such a succinct way and it says a lot about Nadia too. Throughout the whole ordeal of the past year, there's no anger, frustration or sense of having bad luck or anything like that. I wouldn't have been surprised to hear that creep through, to be honest. But I think that being so close to her St Vincent community, from helping out all along, even before the eruption, and from having the respect of nature that is, I imagine, as necessary to a photographer out in the open as a memory card or a battery, she has maintained a positive energy and vibe that I wanted to throw a spotlight on in this episode of Blue Mind. It's nice to check in on our friends, and I think I can speak for all of us when I say Nadia is a friend of all of us here on the podcast. Speaking for you, the listener too, of course. I hope you don't mind me being so bold. Thank you so much to Nadia for being gracious with her time and for sharing her recounting of the events with us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. It was nice catching up with you. It was a really nice thing to be able to do in such a bizarre moment in history. But also, I had this feeling that it would be good to remember that nature doesn't pause for a pandemic. It's like how people still caught colds and flus during the whole time. The undercurrent of normality is still strong and everything still carries on. Even though you wouldn't necessarily class a volcano as something happening on the undercurrents, it's more the idea of how they can still be active and erupting in the midst of a global health crisis. Thankfully, the whole situation ended up being something that was obviously a major imposition and complete unsettling of a community, but didn't result in fatalities. So we can definitely be grateful for that. And I would strongly suggest that you check her Instagram feed for the drastic change in environment too. It really is incredible, like the colour was suddenly switched off your phone. Also, have a look on her Instagram for ways of helping, if the spirit takes you. It sounds like they still require a lot of assistance out there, and links to aid are in her stories if you have a look there. I'll add the link on the show notes too, as she's compiled them all perfectly in one spot. Also check her website frequently for publications and prints and all of that good stuff. You'll find it all there. Take care. Enjoy your afternoon. Bye. The Blue Mind podcast was produced, arranged and scored by me, Buddy Peace. Blue Mind is the name of an excellent book by Wallace J. Nichols, which is essential reading for anyone with an interest of all things sea-related. Thank you so much to Wallace for spiritual inspiration for this podcast. The Blue Mind podcast is produced for Heckles, which you can find online at heckles.co.uk, which is spelt H-A-E-C-K-E-L-S, or physically at number 18, Cliff Terrace, Margate, which you'll find up near the old Lido. Also, let me just give you an update on locations too, because there is now a Heckles House in London, and that is located at number 16, Broadway Market, London, E8, 4QJ. It's an absolutely beautiful location, and I really highly recommend you pay a visit if you're in and around the area, or, or just passing through London, of course. Well worth a visit. You can also follow Heckles on Instagram over on at Heckles for product updates, ocean-based positivity and innovations from all over the world. There are regular posts and stories, so it's almost like a constantly evolving blog of sorts. Loads for you to get lost in. We are also on Spotify, where I compile weekly playlists. 
Just do a quick search for Heckles on Spotify. You'll find us. The playlists are around an hour or more of blissful sonics and beautiful music from all around the world, compiled and selected by hand without any algorithm assistance. Each week is totally unique and is like an escape button if you need it. Most importantly of all though, so many thanks to you all for listening and being a part of this. It's a thrill that you're here and listening to the end. I'm so glad you could find some time to join us. Thank you. We'll see you next episode.